Much is being made, at least anecdotally, about rising crime in Asheville. At the same time, the Asheville Police Department is down roughly 40% of its force. I'm Matt Pikin. My guest today is Asheville Police Chief David Zack, who says the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 created a perfect storm that his department is still struggling to recover from. Law enforcement profession has been vilified to a very large degree and not just locally, but nationally. And as a result, many decided maybe this isn't the right fit for me as a profession, but others felt that if this city doesn't appreciate me, I'll find one that will. Our wide-ranging conversation spans so much territory, I'm breaking the conversation into two parts. You'll hear the second half tomorrow. In today's episode, Chief Zach discusses the challenges he faced from the beginning of his tenure here, the recruiting and retention of officers, and the stresses on officers who are working overtime to fill the gaps. Advertisements don't sound like ads on the Overlook. They sound like conversations, because they are. Take it from one of my earliest sponsors, Jennifer Goodier of Davidia Realty. That was really easy, and I felt really comfortable doing this ad with you. And I'm enjoying it so much that I do want to buy more. If you market a business, or even yourself, make a great impression by advertising on Asheville's hottest show. You can be a sponsor of The Overlook for as little as $100. Ask to learn more by messaging me at matt at podavl.com. That's P-O-D-A-V-L dot com. I began my conversation with Police Chief David Zack by asking about stepping into leadership in a new city on the eve of the pandemic. My first year and a half here, I had employees that I never saw their faces because they were covered by masks. So I could have one of my officers, and, and it happened several times, where once things started to open back up, yeah, and you could come downtown again and people were circulating, that I would be walking down the street and someone would say, hey, chief, how you doing? And I'm like, hey, how are you? And they're like, you don't know me, do you? I go, I'm sorry, I don't think I work for you. And I'm like, but I've never seen your faces. All I've seen for the last year and a half is your eyes. How disarming was that for you coming here? You couldn't have known, nobody could have known the timing, but just not only getting your feet wet in a new city, but with a staff that you didn't know yet and you couldn't be face-to-face -face with. How did that kind of hamstring your leadership and what you wanted to come in with? Communication was impossible because you couldn't even gather in large groups. They were prohibited. Yeah. So you couldn't, we couldn't be in conference rooms. We couldn't be in roll calls. We couldn't conduct those sort of normal day-to-day, -day, even routine meetings were hard. You were doing them over Zoom. So there was no contact. And like I say, that went on for a year and a half. Give me a sense of when you came in of things you wanted to do in your first year or your first months and how that was affected by the pandemic. The worst thing you can do when you come in as a new chief is make too many assumptions. When I came here, yes, I did do my homework, but I also talked to a lot of law enforcement professionals from the area who are telling me you're going into a very difficult situation. Difficult uh, in relation to other police departments? Yeah, that Asheville was unique. I was their fifth chief in eight years. What did that tell you? You obviously knew that track record before coming in. 
did that give you any misgivings even before you started? Not really. When I inquired about the job with some people who do the nationwide recruiting, I basically said, what's the deal? What's going on in Asheville? Why are they having such turnover? And the recruiter's first response was, will you go there? And I said, I'd have to learn a little bit more. And quite honestly, he said they could use a guy like you down there. And that intrigued me. So I wanted to learn more about the department. And I guess a goal would be what's wrong, what's not working, find out, and then try and fix it. You just said something a moment ago. You said you were warned. Can you give me a sense of what you were warned about? I was, said, I was told it's a mess there. They have a lot of problems internally. They have a lot of problems politically. There's a culture in the city that's harsh to police officers, and you would be going into a very hostile environment. What was your experience in that either being true or not true or partially true once you landed and saw for yourself? Wasn't nearly as bad as described. In any of the ways? No, no. I think some of it was exaggerated. Certainly there were obvious challenges that were apparent very early on, but at the same time, it, it wasn't nearly as bad as advertised. And yet you couldn't be fully immersed in the department, as you just said, because of COVID. And then we had the George Floyd killing. Which was only four months after I arrived in the city. You couldn't have had a more challenging situation for a department that didn't even really know you yet. What kind of strategy, as the protests took shape downtown, with officers you barely knew, who barely knew you, did you have an approach, a very specific or deliberate approach, or did you, because you were new, decide, I need to take a step back here and let people who know this city take the lead. I was in the way. As the events unfolded, I realized I was in the way. I wasn't familiar with the terrain. I wasn't familiar with the landmarks. I wasn't familiar with the streets and the interstates. And what I found quickly was just let them do their job. There were decisions that I had to make and that I made sure that I was held accountable for but mostly there, I was there for moral support to let them know I'm here. I spent more time on the front line with our crowd control team than I did in the command post. And just trying to be present and to be seen and to make sure that they knew I was with them. In retrospect, you've had a couple of years now since then to look back on the actions of the department and some of the fallout that happened in terms of how police treated people on the streets and or just some of the blowback from citizens. And in looking back, how do you believe under the circumstances of the pandemic and everything else you were dealing with and being new? And how do you think the department handled itself? Obviously, we had one notable incident, regrettable incident that played out internationally. Can you, uh, that, you? that would have been the, the incident with the water bottles and the aid station. Yeah, that was that moment was regrettable. Other than that, our officers saved this city. Describe that. How do you see that they saved the city? What gets lost on a lot of people is the amount of damage that was done. Buildings had their windows shot out. There was the potential there for much more destruction, and APD kept that from happening. And APD also kept that from happening. Very, very few people were hurt and or injured. And you didn't see that in some of the cities that had major rioting. You saw much more, many more civilians being injured and hurt. 
That didn't happen here. Did we have a couple people who received some significant injuries? Yes, and that's going to happen, unfortunately. But by and large, our officers handled themselves extremely well. And again, we did have a re regrettable incident. We apologized for it. How has that shaped a policy that you might have implemented going forward should similar situations, protests, small or large, happen? How has that shaped policy? We did have to make, just like any after any major incident, you're going to do an after-action report and see what went right, what went wrong. So yeah, there were some policy changes, but nothing that I would say would ultimately have changed how we reacted and what we did. But yeah, we definitely learned from some mistakes and had to make some policy changes. You said that you were warned before you got here about certain conditions of the city and inside the department and outside politically. That was certainly a test of how this city comes to bear on a certain incident. I imagine how your observations, in addition to what you just said about how your department handled that situation, what did you learn about this city, the politics of this city, and the people of this city through that, through the protests around George Floyd? I think when you go back and you look at every, at the, in the moment, you're like, what have I gotten myself into? But then you come to realize this was a moment in history where with COVID that none of us have had a, ever been experienced. And then the nationwide civil unrest, unlike any civil unrest, maybe since the civil rights movement. So no one had experienced any of these conditions simultaneously. So to make a judgment about the people of the city or the city itself, when you're dealing with an historically unprecedented event, don't make a judgment. And it would have been easy to do that, but I've been around long enough to know, give it more time. And now that I have, and I've been here longer, people who live here are great. I love the area. I have no intention of leaving the area. I've met a local woman. We've, we're now married. We just got married a few months back. So this is my home. I love it here. Wow. I love the people here. I love serving this community. And this community is very passionate. It's very quirky. It's you say uh, that with a smile on your face. <laughs> I, I'm getting some double meanings there. That's okay because I'm quirky too. Yeah. How, so, I fit in. So getting to that, you're invested in being here. How has that affected your approach to the job? It's not you're not just coming in and looking to leave in a couple of years. This department, as you said itself, had four previous police chiefs in the eight years prior to you in and out for a variety of reasons. Right. That's not you. How has that affected your outlook in terms of what you are looking for from your department and looking for in general, just in terms of the police's relationship and your relationship to this city? Well, I'm permanently invested. I'm familiar with the chief circuit and there are certain law enforcement executives who are always looking for the next job and they may go from department to department and as more like stepping stones. And when I interviewed here, I had already been in law enforcement for more than 30 years. I had been chief in my previous community for nine. And I told them when I interviewed, I said, this is the last stop on my journey. Asheville is not going to be a stepping stone for me. This is the final stop. And I'm going to be permanently invested in your community where some others that you may be considering, they don't see this as a final destination. They have other plans. I don't. And I think that was appealing to the city, knowing that they had been through several executives before. Well, I also imagine it must have shaped your outlook, too. You weren't looking to come in and just put Band-Aids on things. You, were, you had to look at a long-term 
right. structural strategy, I imagine. Absolutely. And you have some preconceived notions and you have to determine what's fact and what's fiction. And like I say, what I heard more about the scene here, what I was initially told, it, it wasn't true. The department and the officers, the culture of the organization wasn't bad. In fact, it was quite good. They obviously fractured from the constant leadership changes. The politics, oh, you're going to this really far left ideology and it's, yeah, it exists, but there, there's definitely different points of view that, that I've experienced and people want to see their city improve and they know some things are working in the city, some things aren't, and they want it better for everyone. Again, it just wasn't, it just wasn't that bad. If you own or run the marketing of a business in this region, nonprofit or for-profit, podcasting is a unique, engaging way to tell your story. These are called branded podcasts. Your company owns the show, and I'm here to help you put one together. It might be a short series or an ongoing production. You already know about the years of great work I did in public radio and now here with The Overlook. I also want to work for you through my studio, Podcast Asheville. Email me at matt at podavl.com. That's P-O-D-A-V-L.com. Let's talk and see how I can help you meet your marketing goals with a podcast that's all your own. When you came in, you realized it wasn't that bad once you did some assessment. And certainly you just said yourself that the department saved this city back in 2020. You've lost a lot of officers since then. Mm -hmm. You were at the event that I went to just a couple of weeks ago where business people in this town were talking about how they were experiencing crime firsthand. I'm wondering what has changed within your department and just in terms of attrition, the force that existed then versus today, what's changed? First of all, the whole attrition issue has been a perfect storm. Again, there's a national attrition problem. It's not unique to Asheville. Asheville's been hit much harder than just about every city in America. But there was a lot going on already, systemically. Our agency was suffering attrition, losing 15 to 20 officers a year already Why? for a variety of reasons. Can you cite some of those reasons? I think, yeah, certainly compensation is a huge issue. Also, there's, again, I think a lot of just the fractured leadership makes people, the bosses are constantly changing. That's a very unsettling atmosphere for any employee. And I think people ultimately respond better to a stable environment. So I think just that constant change within the department, it, it was an unsettling place to work, even if you enjoyed the people you were working with. So I think you had a lot of people who were just, the chaos of change was dr already driving some away. And then of course, when you talk about the what occurred after the unrest in 2020, that obviously accelerated the attrition, the defund movement, which followed the protests, where there was uncertainty, especially with a lot of young officers, am I gonna have a job? As defund was percolating in the political talk at the time. So if you're a, an officer with one or two years on, you know if there's going to be any sort of defund that you're the first to go. Let's talk about that a little bit. The defund wasn't just strictly local. There were a lot of municipalities, a lot of cities were hearing those cries of defund. Were people leaving your force to get out of policing in general or were they going to other departments? Both. 
both. And early on when we saw that big wave of attrition, it was almost 50-50, where a lot of officers were just, I don't want to be in law enforcement, period. Are younger people not looking at law enforcement as a career anymore, as much that it's a job rather than I'm going to enter, I'm going to go through training, go through the academy, get certified, and I'm going to be doing this for 30 years. The glamour associated with the law enforcement profession has been suffering probably since Ferguson, Missouri. I think since then, agencies across the country have seen a decline in applicants. Officers aren't staying as long, they're retiring much sooner. So this has been a, an ongoing problem for quite a while. And again, accelerated now because of what occurred in 2020. You also touched on though, that there are certain conditions in this city that from your vantage point, play into it. You said it was about 50-50, some people leaving the profession altogether, some going to other departments. You mentioned pay and you mentioned certain liberalism in this city. Are those, from your vantage point, the two main reasons people went to other departments or are there other factors as well? I don't think I quite said that. Okay, please cl clarify <laughs> yeah, for me then. No, I don't think I use the word liberalism at all. No, I think what you definitely and what I definitely heard is that a lot of officers felt that their service to the city wasn't appreciated. How would it be more appreciated in other cities other than pay? I mean, pay is an obvious thing for any employee. Any, they want to earn as much money as they can. If the pay were comparable or exceeding other cities, do you think you would not have lost those officers? I don't think we would have lost as many. It's hard to say. It's hard to answer a hypothetical. Right, but, but I'm now, sure you if, were hearing from your officers other reasons, other conditions. Appreciation was a big factor. The department, they're on social media too. And they read the comments and they read the paper. And law enforcement profession has been vilified to a very large degree. And not just locally, but nationally. And they felt it. And as a result, many decided maybe this isn't the right fit for me as a profession, but others felt that if this city doesn't appreciate me, I'll find one that will. And sometimes there's validity to that. Other times, maybe not. So the police department that you have today, would it be capable of saving the city in the way you described what happened in 2020 if the same thing happened today? Yes. So even though you're down roughly 40% of your officers, you would still think you'd have that same success. They'll get the job done if, it, if need be. How do you Hopefully do we never have to find out. I guess that, uh, that gets to the question of how you're making do. How are you able to patrol and handle crime in this city when you're down that amount of officers and our city just keeps growing? We're not getting smaller. So how are you doing it? I've got some extremely dedicated employees that I'm fortunate to have. And these officers are working a tremendous amount of overtime. They're unbelievably committed to this city and their hearts are big or they wouldn't be here. It'd have been easy to quit for a lot of them. And what you find out is the more dire the circumstances become, the more cohesive the unit becomes. You mentioned overtime. You said there a lot of officers are pulling overtime. And I imagine the money for that is coming from the salaries that would otherwise go to if you were more fully staffed, right? Yeah, it's within the budget yeah. and there's an understanding between our local officials that there's work that needs to be done and it's without the personnel that we have, it's going to cost money. So how many hours a week are some of your officers pulling? 
it really depending on the circumstances. I don't have a number, but I would say it's averaging for many, maybe 20 hours a week. 20 hours of overtime. A week. I've seen our detectives come in on homicides or so forth and found them sleeping on the couches. You have to be concerned about the stress level. Very much so. What are you doing about that to help your officers and your staff? We're really, really, I think, going to be a leader in the country as far as law enforcement goes, as far as officer wellness. We work with responder services who helps our officers deal with stress, whether it's work-related or you know personal matters that, that are very active in our department. We, we just received a grant for a wellness coordinator to work with, on fitness and diet. We have a tremendous in-house workout facility. So we're really concentrating on our officers' overall mental and physical health. And I think that is helping us through the current crisis as well. Along with that, I'm sure you're really trying to actively recruit and add to your staff. What are you doing now? What are you telling potential trainees or people who might come from other departments? How are you trying to position your department in this city to be attractive to more police officers? It's interesting and it's well documented now that we did hire an outside firm to assist with recruiting, which now other agencies across the country are copying. I think we were ahead of the game on that. But when we were talking to some of these firms, there was a theme that we're going after a different sort of individual these days, where maybe in the past, the lure of law enforcement was, you know, the action and chasing bad guys and tactical teams and that part of the profession was something that we would push very hard, the adrenaline portion. And in talking to the recruiters, they were like, this particular modern workforce are looking more at the region itself, not just the job, the region. So if you look in our recruiting materials, you'll see that we're showing the beauty of the area, that Asheville's a really beautiful place to come to and highlighting what the area has to offer. So it's not just the job that they're looking for, they're also looking at the area. So we tried to promote both. And also more the service aspect of policing as opposed to maybe the adrenaline type, which used to appeal to guys like me back in the day. Really? Okay. Because <laughs> I imagine, tell me if I'm wrong, maybe this is an oversimplification, but I imagine the adrenaline marketing of it is good guys versus bad guys. Back in the day that, that w when I was coming up 36 years ago, yeah, that was more what the recruitment was. Like, you're going to go out and you're going to chase bad guys. And but if you look at our recruiting materials today, we're actually promoting what law enforcement really does, how you're really going to spend your day. And you're going to spend your day solving problems, working closely with your community and building relationships, not just catching bad guys. So it's a complete shift in how we market the profession. How is that working so far? How long have you been working with this firm and would have been the... Only a short while. Okay. Only a short while. What people have to understand about the firm that we're working with, it's digital advertising. They're not going out, combing the streets, going <laughs> to job fair, grabbing people by the collar and bringing them into the door. What they're saying is Asheville's here. And again, we're going where the market is. You don't get people these days at job fairs. It's through digital advertising. You've got to put out a product that gets people's attention and alerts people that there's opportunity. So that's what this firm does. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of traffic on our website. It's increasing 
every month. And it's still, again, too early to tell, but that's what they do. They just let you know we're here. So we know it's reaching people because we're getting applicants from Nashville. We're getting applicants from Charlotte. We're getting ap applicants from Atlanta. We even got one from Australia. Now we got to get them in the door. My conversation with Asheville Police Chief David Zack continues with tomorrow's episode. We talk about the chief's frustration at not being able to forge the community partnerships he believes are essential for addressing problems related to homelessness and opioid addiction. I also broach with him the arrests and trespassing charges against two people working for the online publication, The Asheville Blade. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online by 6 a.m. every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at podavl.com. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.